Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Sesha Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard. More changes on Hillsborough Street, Gary Coleman's birthday, and a 2,700-foot white elephant and what it all means for your weekend. I'm John Boyer. These stories and more on the February 8th edition of Eye on the Triangle. This weekend news on Eye on the Triangle. A brief rundown of the latest news. From the Glass Enclosed Nerve Center here at WKNC in Raleigh, I'm Evan Garris. Here now our top local story. Two Hillsborough Street restaurants have closed their doors, one temporarily and the other indefinitely. NewRaleigh.com reports that Frasers and Red Hot and Blue are the latest victims of the Hillsborough Street renovation. Frasers will close after Valentine's Day and reopen later in the year as a wine bar, but Red Hot and Blue will not be as fortunate. Employees of the barbecue joint showed up for work only to find locked doors. It is unclear what will take its place. Whether you call it Snowmageddon, like President Obama, or the Snowpocalypse, or SnowMG, life shut down in Washington and much of the Mid-Atlantic this weekend due to a history-making blizzard. This accounts for the utter lack of political news today. Nature is sending its apologies in the form of an additional 10 to 20 inches of snow on the Capitol by Wednesday. The Washington area has seen two 16-plus-inch storms already this season. With the average rate of return between two such storms normally around 25 years, Weather Underground's Dr. Jeff Masters estimates that this was a once-in-625-year occurrence. The New York Times is following breaking news in Arlington, Virginia, where longtime Democratic Congressman John Murtha passed away. Mr. Murtha was hospitalized last week after complications during gallbladder surgery. A close friend of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Murtha was chair of the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense. Mr. Murtha represented his home state of Pennsylvania for 35 years and was a decorated veteran of the Vietnam War. An update to a story we brought you earlier in the year. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai at 2,717 feet and 160 floors stands as the world's tallest building. After opening its doors to the public in January, electrical problems have forced the owners to close indefinitely, according to the Associated Press. Official spokespersons were mum, but some suspect that slow bookings could also be to blame. The tower, which was seen as the metaphor for the opulence of Dubai, now appears to be a metaphor for the troubled economy of the city. Iran has declared that it will begin enriching uranium for use in a medical reactor, backtracking on a proposal made earlier this week in which the country would send material abroad for enrichment. The New York Times is reporting that Western nations have threatened to employ further sanctions after the International Atomic Energy Agency received a letter from Iran on Monday stating that it intends to enrich uranium up to 20 percent. The U.S., France, and Russia favored the previous proposal to ship uranium abroad because it would deprive Iran of any significant stockpiles of fissile materials, yet provide it with the fuel rods it needs. In entertainment news, 106 million people tuned in to watch the Saints win their first Super Bowl, surpassing the finale of MASH to become the most watched television program in American history, according to Nielsen. The old record for a Super Bowl was set last year by the nearly 99 million who tuned in to watch the Steelers beat the Cardinals. This shouldn't be confused with audience share. The match finale still holds the record at a 77, whereas last night's game had a 68 share due to the increasing number of households with televisions. Analysts believe that this weekend's blizzard kept millions indoors watching the game, similar to the huge ratings boost the inauguration of President Obama received because of a snowstorm here in the Carolinas. We'd also like to take this opportunity to announce the Eye on the Triangle Super Bowl prediction contest. Do you think the Toronto Vikings or the Los Angeles Rams will win Super Bowl 49? Send your prediction to publicaffairs at wknc.org or wknceot on Twitter with hashtag EatYourHeartOutGroundhog. The winner will receive custody of future pet of the week, Beverly the Sea Turtle. Last week's pet of the week, Jasper the Groundhog, noticed her shadow but was sadly struck by a news fan. On this day in 1971, the NASDAQ stock market index opened for the first time. In 1968, the American Civil Rights Movement, the Orangeburg Massacre, an attack that left three or four dead in Orangeburg, South Carolina, on black students from South Carolina State University who were protesting racial segregation at the town's only bowling alley. In 1952, Elizabeth II was proclaimed Queen of the United Kingdom. In 1922, President Warren G. Harding introduces the first radio in the White House. And no doubt he was listening to Eye on the Triangle. On this day in 1855, the Devil's Footprints mysteriously appear in southern Devon in England. And in 1692, a doctor in Salem Village, Massachusetts Bay Colony suggests that two girls in the family of the village minister may be suffering from bewitchment, leading to the Salem witch trials. Lots of birthdays today. Gary Coleman, Ted Koppel, the journalist, and John Williams, the famous composer. James Dean, the favorite American actor. Jules Verne and Dmitry Mendeleev. Chemistry is something I'd rather forget. 
Weather tonight, increasing clouds with a low in the upper 20s. It'll be a cloudy morning and a rainy afternoon and evening tomorrow. High temperatures will only be in the upper 30s. Rain continues into Tuesday night before clearing out on Wednesday. Now, of course, that rain will turn into snow up in Virginia and Washington, where an additional foot is possible on top of what they've already seen this weekend. Wednesday will be mostly sunny but very windy. Combined with temperatures in the mid-30s, it could feel very raw. Don't expect a big warm-up anytime soon. Thursday and Friday, we'll see the cold trend continue with lows in the lower 20s and highs in the mid-40s. Right now, it's partly cloudy and 37 here in the city of Oaks. Please stay with us as Eye on the Triangle continues with Sports and Evans Editorial. Listen to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1 FM. I'm Seja Hindi. Up next, we have our sports segment uh, this week in Wolfpack Sports with Derek and Tyler. Guys, what can you guys, what can you tell me about uh, NC State basketball? I mean, are we going to be winning any more games? What's going on? Uh, that's still up in the air, Seja. We're, we're trying to figure that out ourselves. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that anybody knows. Um, maybe Sydney Lowe does. I, who knows? Uh, anyway, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit of basketball here. Um, for those who didn't watch over the weekend with the cold weather and everything and the Super Bowl going on, maybe some of you forgot that uh, NC State played Saturday afternoon. They played Georgia Tech in Atlanta and uh, once again came up on the losing end, um, 73-71. was a good game. Uh, NC State kind of had a late run to get back into the game and, you know, had a chance to win the game at the end, just couldn't quite get it done, couldn't hit the shot. Um, you know, another loss. I think that makes three straight now in ACC. Um I don't know, Tyler, did you watch the game or did you did you have a chance to see it? Yeah, unfortunately I saw the very end of it and uh, it looks as if we're trying to lose every way possible you could lose. Um, we've lost in a variety of ways and this past weekend was another great example of some excitement down the stretch but the same unfortunate result. Um, Georgia Tech really collapsed. Uh, this is negative, but they kind of look like state to me the way we started pressing the last couple minutes and they absolutely turned the ball over and over again, really let us get back into it. Uh, had the, had the ball in possession down two and came down. Uh, Javi Gonzalez got a quality look on a pull-up from the elbow, maybe 10 or 12 feet, uh, missed that short. Uh, scramble ensued. The ball uh, popped out to Julius Mays. He had a pretty good look, uh, all things considered. He left his just a bit short, too. The ball clanked off the iron. If that goes in, we win. So it wasn't like we just missed a chance for overtime. With, with Mays missed three, we missed a chance with the win. So it hurt just like uh, the past couple games have all hurt, seems like. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of that, that Julius Mays missed shot, I'm going to go into a little bit uh, of a story that's kind of gotten a little more news today um, now that it's Monday and everybody has stopped worrying about the Super Bowl. Um, after the game, uh, Sidney Lowe was very, very upset at the officials uh, because of what he perceived to be a foul on Julius Mays that did not get called. Um, what Sidney Lowe did after that was storm off the court uh, looked like he was chasing officials, but the officials were actually still on the court, so I don't really know. He could have confronted the officials if he wanted to, uh, but ended up just going into the locker room, and word has it that he did not shake uh, anyone's hands from Georgia Tech, including their head coach, Paul Hewitt. Um, so the big the big story today is, you know, should Sidney Lowe have, have acted a little differently after the game? I don't know. You know, in the heat of the moment, it's tough to uh, to judge how these guys react when they, you know, they feel that, a foul was committed that you know has an impact on the on the result of the game. So I don't I don't know. Have you have you heard anything today, or what are what are your thoughts on it? Uh, my thoughts. I mean, the obvious answer is yes, it's inappropriate. You've you've got to shake hands. That's part of the game. It's part of, it, like I said, it's the nature of the game. You win or lose, you shake the other the opponent's um, hand. But I didn't think it was that big a deal. You know, a lot of a lot of college coaches lose their cool. A lot of them do a lot more ridiculous things than uh, forget to shake uh, the opposing coach's hand. I'm sure Paul Hewitt didn't appreciate it. But I don't think it ruined the win for Georgia Tech, and I don't think it's going to be a thing where, where Paul Hewitt has a, has a big problem with Sidney Lowe forever. I think it's unfortunate that Lowe couldn't keep his cool and, and go shake hands with Hewitt, but to me it's not a big deal. Maybe, maybe I'm uh, underestimating it, but as far as I'm concerned, like I said, a lot of coaches do a whole lot worse when they're that upset. So Yeah, it came into the news again last night. Uh, Peyton Manning, after the Super Bowl, I think failed to shake anybody's hands. And, you know, I guess maybe when you lose the I Super Bowl. I don't think Bowl, that ruined the night for New Orleans. I'll right, put it that yeah, way. I, I don't think Drew Brees cares. Um, anyway, moving on a little bit, we're going to talk a little bit about the rest of the season. State has uh, another game coming up Wednesday night uh, in the RBC Center against uh, Virginia Tech, who's, you know, a team that's playing well. Um, NC State, I think, now is 2-7 and seven in the ACC. And, you know, it's just 
one of those things where I don't really know that there's that many more wins on the schedule um, to be found. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what this team needs to do. They, they seem to, like you said, find different ways to lose games. So, you know, Wednesday night's going to be another tough game, and, and we'll see. I mean, I don't – you know, they can win the game yeah. if they play well, but that's, that's every night. Yeah, and one positive thing is the team is showing a whole lot of fight uh, against the Georgia Tech – against Georgia Tech this weekend, coming back down to make it a game after what the uh, deficit was with just a few minutes remaining was very impressive, the heart this team showed. And it showed a lot of heart in the loss to Arizona, another nearly incredible comeback that fell just short. And then the Florida game wasn't a comeback, but it was definitely a game where the team team played real hard, just didn't knock the free throws down. So it's not like not like State's not competing. They're just not pulling them out. And uh, if the Duke game was any indication, we can beat anybody. State can beat anybody, but – as the three games since the Duke game have shown, we can also uh, no games a sure bet, and uh, there's a and uh, it's uh, every win's tough in this conference, even in a somewhat of a down year for the ACC. It's still tough every game out. Definitely, and that's one thing State does have going for it is that you know the ACC is down, so you know they can they can sneak up on anybody and win any given night. It's just whether they want to do it or not. Um, one last thing I'm going to mention before we get out of here for this week. Uh, uh, coming up this coming Sunday, so it's a few days away now, but, but it'll be it'll happen before we talk to you guys again. Hoops for Hope, um, it's the annual thing that they've started with women's basketball, where they're trying to raise money to research cancer. Um, you know, it's this Sunday afternoon. I believe the tip time is five p.m. We're trying five thirty p.m. I'm being told. Okay, so um, you know, I know they've sold a lot of tickets already. I still think there's probably tickets available. You can probably show up Sunday afternoon and get in. But uh, a lot of the proceeds from Sunday go directly to the uh, KYAL WBCA Women's Cancer Research Fund. So, you know, check that out. It's worth the time. Uh, come see the Wolfpack play basketball. Thanks again, guys. We're out of here. Have a good week. Listen to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Next up is our weekly editorial by Evan Garris. As always, if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And as always, um, the opinions of Evan are not representative of WKNC, NCSU, or student media. Thank you, Sedja. Near the end of last year, the North Carolina General Assembly proposed a tuition hike for all students in the University of North Carolina system. The revenue garnered garnered from the 8% hike, what amounts to an extra $200 per student, would be added to the state's general fund to help contain an out-of-control budget deficit estimated to top $400 to $500 million in the next fiscal year. Now, of course, as soon as this plan was announced, the lobbying wheels of the UNC system started turning. This tax on students was deemed unfair both to the university system and its students. Student government at each of the system's constituent institutions quickly caught wind of this scheme and colluded to draft a petition aimed at putting the kibosh on these fees. Now, it sounds as if our dear leaders are actually fighting for what is just, yes? Well, they're not, and here's why. The state of North Carolina needs that money. Still reeling from the credit crisis, statewide unemployment is around 11%. Local school boards are attempting to accommodate more students with fewer resources, and our infrastructure is in desperate need of an overhaul. No one likes paying the government. No one. But it's a necessary evil if we're to continue enjoying the services that gave so many of us the opportunity to seek out and obtain higher education. North Carolina cannot continue to function in debt year after year. So in this particular instance, let's muster up some courage and take a short-term hit in order for a long-term benefit. $200 may sound like a lot, but when factored into the thousands each of us dole out to our respective universities annually, it's a small amount to pay. Here's a situation that presents us with a rare opportunity. Unlike humanitarian crises and social inequalities, sitting back and throwing money at this problem will make it go away. So bite your tongues and open your wallets. Here's an effective way to make a difference. And just like Sedja reminded you earlier, we want you to tell us what you think about what I think. So should you feel the irresistible urge to opine, send your pithy comments to publicaffairs at wknc.org. That was the editorial on Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. We have a lot of good stuff coming up for this episode, so make sure to stay tuned. Now we'll take a short break.
WKNC 88.1. This is Seja Hindi on Eye on the Triangle. We have a lot of uh, great things coming up next, like we told you guys earlier, so make sure to stay tuned. Um, a brief preview of the Burning Coal Theater will be coming up next. Um, but before we get to that, we have our VIP segment on Glenwood South in downtown Raleigh. Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Talking to people that matter. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle's VIP section. I'm Allison Harmon. This is a big year for Raleigh. The city's planning department is expecting the national 2010 census to gauge our capital's population of more than 400,000 residents, doubling the city's population from 30 years ago. In parallel with this growth, some of the city's central neighborhoods have begun a movement toward a more lively metropolitan atmosphere. New local businesses have completely reinvented Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh, two areas whose streets used to empty out right after the workday ended. This week, I discussed the new image of these two neighborhoods with business owners from both locations, which have developed such distinct identities over the past 10 years that they independently drive in enough business to keep bars, restaurants, and cafes packed well past dark. Downtown Raleigh's population, which currently hovers at about 22,000, has grown by 19% since 2000, according to the Capital Area Metropolitan Planning Organization. And by 2035, the same organization predicts the downtown population will have more than doubled from the 2000 census. I sat down with Chris Powers and David Woody Lockwood, co-owners of the Busy Bee Cafe in downtown Raleigh. We discussed how their restaurant, which opened in the spring of last year, fits into the new image of downtown Raleigh. Chris and Woody, thanks for coming in today. Sure, thanks for having us. Thank you. So you've both worked on Glenwood South and in downtown Raleigh. Where exactly did you work in those areas? Bartended and wrote the bar program for uh, Bogarts and the beer list for High Five and uh, moved downtown to write the beer list at the Raleigh Times and left there to work on opening my own project. I uh, also worked at Bogarts. We, that's where we met. We opened Bogarts together as servers, actually. Chris took over the bar and I also began bartending. Moved over to Red Room eventually and was the bar manager there as well as the general manager. Your location is right in the epicenter of what many people consider to be the new downtown Raleigh. Why did you choose Wilmington Street over other areas like Glenwood South or another street in downtown Raleigh? For that exact reason, the neighborhood's growing quickly. The city is doing their best to make that area better. The costs were obviously involved, but the neighborhood was a lot more important to us, the community feeling down there and the fact that there was already a love of beer in that area. Fayetteville Street already, had already been developed, and we were looking at Wilmington Street as the next section of that downtown area to be developed. And we moved in and uh, sort of want to be the pioneers on that street. There's other opportunities for restaurants and bars to open up, and we just wanted to get in there and get started. And were you considering any other locations? Yes, we were open to any location. We really like living downtown, like working downtown, and we consider that area of Wilmington Street to be pretty much central to downtown. Um, and the opportunity came up, and we had to jump on it. We both walked to work the greatest thing. Yeah. The Busy Bee Cafe seems to mesh perfectly with the other restaurants and bars in that area. Did the location have any effect on the restaurant's design and menu, or did you choose the location based on what you'd already had in mind for the restaurant? We, we love beer. That's like a huge passion for Woody and I. We, we love that. And the exciting thing about it is trying to get people into beer, try different beers, you know, stepping stone, get away from the macro brews and get into more micro stuff. And that was something that was a real big passion for us. In that area of town, that concept works because we have a clientele that are looking for that. They're looking for not just 12 beers. Uh, they want to come in and have one great beer or two great beers and really appreciate that. We started with the concept with the, the idea of the beers and then moved into the food menu. And we were able to hire a really great chef and he brought a lot to the table, his love of local food doing local food, just doing it well, ingredients and focusing on that. That was important from the beginning to really get, it wasn't one way or another, just right off the bat. They all came together at once. We fell in love with the building and lucked out with the way the, the brick is and, yeah. you know, just the way we walked into it. And once we tore everything out, the way it looked was beautiful. So the concept was there a little bit, but it, it really developed with the building. Mm -hmm. so. Having worked in both locations, give us a little insight into the difference between Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh. With us in particular and with a lot of our neighbors, it's just a more laid back, comfortable kind of feeling. Just the setting that we have. You don't have to get dressed up in a suit to come out and have dinner there. Or even late night if you want to go out. Glenwood, all the years we spend, people get dressed up. It's a little more glitzy. Mm -hmm. That's the right term. Yeah. We wanted to be a place where people could come out five nights a week, come in after work, come in in their soccer uniform, come in anywhere that they end up meeting their friends and not feel bad about it. Glenwood Avenue is a little bit more of a, an event sort of thing. We see it as a place where people go out to celebrate bachelorette parties or go out to party, whereas we want to be Monday through Sunday, a place that people think about bringing their friends or their family when they come to town to show them, say, this is where I go. This is my cheers. Downtown Raleigh and Glenwood South are only blocks apart, so it's interesting to see how two areas so close together can garner such different crowds, images, and even business. Would you say there's a competition there? 
I think the R-Line has made a little bit of a bridge, not to sound like there's any ego involved, but I think Chris and I having contacts from Glenwood helped with a little bit of crossover, but I wouldn't say competition. I think there's a lot of places opening up in between that are kind of making it so people start venturing a little bit further in either direction. What we do downtown is, is so much different than what goes on in Glenwood Avenue. There's been a lot of talk in the media lately about the new images for both Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh. What images do these areas have now and what are the new images that they're working toward? It's bringing people back to downtown, celebrating these old buildings that they're not building new buildings like that. Our building is 104 years old. We chose to celebrate it. Places like Landmark do the same thing and Foundation. We're trying to bring people that work downtown, get them to stay downtown, to think of staying downtown. You know, they'll work at the Wachovia and walk across the street to Foundation for a drink or come over to the Busy Bee for dinner. We're trying to bring people our age back into downtown. People were so set on North Raleigh or other areas of Raleigh to hang out, to go to dinner. We're trying to focus on downtown. The development of Glenwood South brought mixed-use condominiums to the area, which is also experiencing some growth and population. I also met up with Sarah Coleman, owner of the vintage-inspired cupcake shop on Glenwood South. As the regulars filed in for their cupcake fix, Sarah and I talked about the changes she's seen on Glenwood South since she moved into the location in July 2007. Thanks for meeting with me. Tell us a little bit about the history of the cupcake shop. Sure. Um, the cupcake shop has been here for about two and a half years. We are an upscale cake boutique and bakery um, on Glenwood South. We have a cafe area where you can walk in and purchase a cupcake or a cup of coffee, come in and have dessert after work. Um, and we also do catering for special events, so weddings, birthday parties, corporate events, and things of that nature. And for people who haven't been into the shop, can you describe the atmosphere? The general idea that we were going for was sort of that vintage bakery, so like a bakery that your grandmother would have gone to when she was younger, um, something really warm and neighborhoody, which is why we went with the decor that we did. We wanted it to be very inviting and to have sort of a sense of nostalgia to it, but also to have that neighborhoody feel. So it's not like every other chain bakery you've ever been in so that you know the people behind the counter and come in and you know you're getting a premium product. What was the atmosphere like on Glenwood South back in 2007? Early on, um, end of 2005, beginning of 2006 was when you started to see a few businesses move in. So it was sort of a quiet excitement on the street because there were things that were in the line to happen. Businesses that were projecting to be moved in, residences that were projecting to be built. But at that time, it was still a little bit of a quiet rumbling because a lot of the new things that are now here had not been built yet. So there was a very subtle optimism from the business owners who were starting projects in the area because we knew the direction that we thought that things were going to go, but didn't see that progress until later on into 2006, early 2007, when the boom sort of happened and we saw condos being built and new restaurants opening and bars opening. So initially it was just sort of a quiet excitement, which has now turned into one of the top places to be on a Friday or Saturday night. Several other businesses along Glenwood South have the same kind of 50s, 40s nostalgia feel to them. Did that start with a cupcake shop or was that theme already here when you moved in? I think we were sort of on the early end of that trend. Um, when we first moved in, there were a few different bars and restaurants that were established here, um, like the Hibernian, 518 West, 42nd Street Oyster Bar, but they were sort of um, anchors to the neighborhood that had been here for a really long time. Um, and I think as far as new businesses coming in that were sort of seeking that nostalgia of something from your childhood, we were one of the first to sort of put that image forth. But in keeping with the idea that this was going to be a residential mixed area where people were going to live and work and play in the same area. We wanted to kind of keep it with that neighborhoody feel. How has that plan evolved into today's new image of Glenwood South? You definitely started to see businesses come in like the smaller coffee shops. So Helios, which is a freestanding coffee, I guess you could say cafe area because they serve sandwiches and breakfast. You started to see some of the residential buildings come in. So like 222 Glenwood and the new condos on Tucker Street. And all of those were being built not so much to mimic just apartment buildings that had been thrown up, but we're really trying to mimic things that would have been here in the past. So the residential buildings sort of merged in with the businesses so as not to interrupt the flow. And then we saw other small businesses come in, like different salons. There are a few boutiques, Catch-22 and Revolver, which opened on the street. Um, and those both have sort of that vintage feel. And the restaurants and bars that followed sort of went along with that same keeping smaller spaces, local business owners who were looking to do something a little different to bring some variety to the area. Since the majority of businesses on Glenwood South sprung up within the last few years, what did Glenwood South look like in 2007? 
A lot of the buildings were empty. A lot of them were being used for office space or storage facilities because a lot of the, the buildings on the street specifically are old warehouses. So they were very big spaces which have now been chopped up into smaller spaces which is a little more conducive for businesses. So a lot of what you would see on the street prior to us being here were more office buildings and less retail space. Yeah, I would say that probably prior to 2006-2007 it was really undefined. People were familiar with Glenwood Avenue, but the term Glenwood South has really sort of formed in the last two to three years to encompass the general area between Hillsborough Street and Peace Street. Before, I think people just referenced Glenwood Avenue and they knew it was somewhere between Hillsborough Street and the mall. Now you have this idea of Glenwood South area, which is between Hillsborough and Peace and sort of encompasses all the businesses, a retail space, and then some of the mixed use, like the residential buildings in between. So I think the neighborhood has really developed more of an identity now, which kind of goes along in keeping with the different spaces which have developed in the last several years, like the North Hills area, the Midtown area, Fayetteville Street and downtown area. Glenwood South has sort of held its own as a separate entity, which has been nice. Is this the final new image for Glenwood South? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's definitely established itself in that when you refer to Glenwood South, people typically know what you're referring to and what area you're referring to. I think as far as identity that there's still a lot of growth potential for the area because there are several new things in the pipeline with the city and also the Merchants Association to try to establish even a stronger identity of the area. But I do think that there is potential for it to become even more than what it is currently because there's a lot of space on the street for more businesses and more restaurants. But I do think that we've established ourselves with a nice image thus far. It's difficult to ignore the efforts that Raleigh's local business owners have put into revitalizing all different neighborhoods of Raleigh. Is there a citywide trend toward the same goal or are the improvements more localized? The different areas have done a good job of individualizing themselves in that North Hills is probably more of a family-friendly area. They have the movie theater there and they have the events in the park that they do. And the downtown area is very much mixed use for business people, students, with all the festivals that occur on Fayetteville Street. They've done a really good job of kind of bringing the entire population of the city together. And then Glenwood South tends to be a little more on the young adult side with bars and restaurants and lots of late-night offerings. But I think the common thread in all of those is that the different areas have tried very hard to involve local business owners and have been very selective in choosing what vendors they want in those particular spots to avoid sort of the strip mall syndrome of a McDonald's or a Wendy's on every corner, which has, I think, helped to identify those places as quality areas that people want to spend their time and their money. And what are the main differences that you see between Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh? The Glenwood South area is much more of a neighborhoody feel. There are people who are living in houses as well as condos that sort of interweave into the Glenwood South area off of side streets. So I think that there are lots of people who do walk down to Glenwood to relax and chill out after work, um, grab a cup of coffee, grab a beer at a local pub, come and have a cupcake. But at the same time, there are lots of offerings down here for people who want to come down and have a nice dinner out or want to come and hear a band or have a nice cocktail somewhere at a jazz club. So I think that there are some similarities in the two um, and that we probably pull very similar clientele. I think the downtown area as well as Glenwood South both pull college students um, from the campus. I think we both probably pull business people um, and I think we both pull from sort of the North Hills Cary area as well. So I think the clientele is probably very similar. Um, I think the feel might be a little more relaxed in the Fayetteville Street area right now. Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh weren't always working toward a new image. NC State alumnus and Raleigh entrepreneur Van Austin recalls a time when the two areas didn't have an image at all. Van has opened several establishments in Raleigh with locations ranging from Hillsborough Street to Glenwood South to downtown Raleigh. He currently owns Mojo's on Glenwood South and Slim's in downtown Raleigh. Van, thanks for coming in today. Tell us a little bit more about your experience in Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh. Probably about 1996 or so, 95, we opened up Havana Deluxe. And when I say we, it's my partner and I, Chris Post. We pretty much have done everything together that I'll be talking about. So we opened up Havana in 1996, and that was the first bar in Glenwood South. The Rockford and 518 West, they were there, but they were restaurants. And we were the very first bar down there. If you see what it's like now, you can imagine what it was like then with basically two restaurants and a bar. And then uh, we opened up a place in the warehouse district, which is no longer there. Cork, it's been sold. And then... Mojo's on Glenwood South and Slim's, which is a downtown bar, and it was basically the first bar downtown. There were some places over in Moore Square and the, the old farmer's market down there, but it was the very first bar downtown. 
and we used to joke that if you saw somebody that was walking downtown after 7 o'clock at night, that they were going to Slim's because there was nothing else down there. And what year was that? Slim's was opened in 1999. Uh, we opened it. I remember it was tax day of 1999. We opened April 15th, and that was Slim's. And Mojo's, I want to say, right around the same time. And when did you start to see a shift in the amount of local businesses that moved downtown and to Glenwood South? Well, with Glenwood South, once we went in there, and we were by no means any kind of trendsetter. It was not like we were smarter than everybody else and beat the people to it. We were just looking for a place that had cheap rent. So that's why we went down there. And then we were pretty successful right from the get-go. Um, it was at the height of the cigar bar craze. So we did very well. And then it seemed like right after that, the places just started popping up, down, popping up, and popping up. The big watershed moment was when Sullivan's opened up, the really upscale restaurant. And from there on out, everything filled in. Right about that time, in 98 or so, that's when we went downtown. They were talking about redoing the Belks building, uh, which is now has been redone in its apartments, but what they were talking about was a little more on the grand scale. So I went looking for a building that was between the Belks building and Moore Square, which were, I believe that Tiernano had opened up down there, and I think that was a, the only place that was down there. So we were looking for a place that, you know, that people would have to walk and pass by. So we opened up Slim's originally as a place called the Lakeside Lounge, which uh, had music seven nights a week and offered one band that came on at 11 o'clock. We were partners with the Lakeside Lounge in New York City. That was their concept. And while it worked fine in New York City, in the East Village, it was not quite the thing that was needed for downtown Raleigh. So we had to adapt it a little bit. And to do that, they didn't want to mess with their model. So we bought the Lakeside Partners out and turned it into Slim's. Several local business owners have been mentioning a kind of vague and all-powerful they. Who are they? The city of Raleigh or business owners with a grander plan for the area? Well, the Belks building, I believe, was sold, obviously, by Belks. And there was going to be some city development money that was offered for the Belks building. And that's what ended up falling through. It never got developed like it was supposed to. Right about that time, Empire Properties, which is Greg Hatem's group, another wonderful NC State alumni, he started going downtown and buying up buildings. You know, you can obviously see what he's done, Gravy and CT and the Raleigh Times. I mean, he's made a definite impact. So, you know, one guy like that really helped it along. Students I've talked to seem prone to quickly choose between Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh, but many local business owners disagree that there is a rivalry between the two. Owning establishments in both areas, would you say that there is a rivalry there? If I had to describe the difference between Glenwood South and downtown, if you're familiar with New York at all, I would describe Glenwood South as the meatpacking district. People that dress up, popped collars. There are people from North Raleigh who come to Glenwood South. You look at downtown, it's more like the East Village. The places are a little bit grittier, a little seedier, what I consider to be a lot more fun and an actual experience. People on Glenwood South, they're there to be seen. And people that go downtown are downtown to drink and have a good time. And that's how I've noticed it. And did the diverging atmosphere start in early 2000? Or I guess did it take a few more businesses popping up down there before there was really a, that noticeable of a difference? In 2000, there still wasn't anything downtown. Raleigh Times wasn't there. Obviously, Landmark, CD, Gravy. There was nothing downtown. There was no rivalry because we were the only place downtown. It would probably be more around 2003 when things started popping up down there. From observing the development of these two areas for the past 10 years firsthand, would you say that they still have a long way to go before they reach their final image? Well, I think short of a nuclear bomb that, that Glenwood South is, is going to be the place for, I hate to use a pejorative, but for downtown people, we would consider the Glenwood South people almost to be posers. I don't know what's going to develop with downtown, but right now, you know, you, you look around and you see rockers and hipsters downtown. You know, you see people in leather jackets and funny hats, skinny ties. So there's a definite degree of difference. Uh, I don't know what downtown is going to develop into, but I'm pretty sure that Glenwood South has found its métier. What would your vision of the new downtown Raleigh include? If I was smart enough to know what downtown needed, I would be opening it up right now. And while I'm always looking for a new place to open, I'm not really sure exactly what downtown needs. What you're seeing now is people opening the same thing. Landmark was very similar to Raleigh Times, except for it didn't serve food. But the look and the feel is, you know, with the old-timey bars is about the same thing. And then you look at Isaac Hunter's Tavern. It's almost as if they have gotten a mold and they're building the same place over and over. What I'd like to see is a bunch of different places. Obviously, you look and Isaac Hunter's Tavern is filled, Landmark is filled, so these people seem to be pretty smart and on the ball. Are there any incentives from the city for new local businesses to start up downtown? What, what drove us down there was cheaper rent. When I first signed the lease on Havana Deluxe, it was about one-fourth of what it is now. We signed a five-year lease with a three-year option, and after our three-year option was up, the rent more than tripled, and that's when we sold Havana Deluxe.
you're going to see a lot of bars come and go on Glenwood South because to open anything up down there now, the rents are almost penal. You know, you're going to have to be really, really smart to get something done down. We opened up Havana Deluxe on what would be now considered a shoestring budget. We spent about $80,000 on it. We did all the work ourselves. I don't believe that you could go in and open a bar down on Glenwood South that anyone is going to go into for anywhere less than half a million dollars now. Is the case the same for Slim's? You know, I don't want to get into the numbers, but we still have probably the best rent deal in town on Slim's. We've got a long-term rent deal there, and we're very happy with it. And now you look at places, and the rent is much, much more. For the sheer fact that rent should go up when places are successful, and it, it builds for everybody, which includes the landowners. They should share in it as well, but it makes it harder to go in and do something on a budget. You won't find many guys going down there and bootstrapping. It used to be that when bars opened up, you found a lot of guys were bartenders who saved up their money and went and opened places. That's what I did. And nowadays, you just can't do that. You're going to see less and less of that because you're going to have to have some serious money behind you. So are we going to be seeing more restaurant groups dominating the downtown area over independently owned local businesses? Well, I think that's what you're going to see. You know, you look at places like Bogart's and High Five, they're all run by the same restaurant group. And you're going to have to have some kind of success behind you to be able to go in. And you're going to have to have the money to be able to put up the rent just for a year. Everybody always says, you know, you have to have a certain amount of money to struggle through the lean times. Well, that amount of money has gone through the roof. After the interview, Ben and I talked a little bit more about the differences between Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh. We turned the mic back on so that he could end with this statement. If they were television shows, I would say that Glenwood South would be that Jersey Shore show with Snooky and the guy with the abs. And downtown would be the travel show with Anthony Bourdain. Reporting for Eye on the Triangle, I'm Maggie Luckadoo. I met up with Spencer Lee, a UNC Chapel Hill senior at a Carborough coffee shop. Lee is a Carborough resident and works at the Cat's Cradle, a music venue there. Parallel to Raleigh's Glenwood South and downtown area, Lee noted the differences between Carborough and Chapel Hill. He said that while there are some who frequent both areas to go to bars, restaurants, and music venues, there is a fairly distinct divide between the two nightlifes. And while there are differences, the two towns are able to coexist. So what would you say are the main differences between Carborough and Chapel Hill, specifically Franklin Street? The biggest thing, like the, the biggest difference is that Carborough has a different general atmosphere. It's kind of hippie, I guess. Yeah. It's basically connected to downtown Chapel Hill, but it's still considered to be outside Chapel Hill. And so it has kind of an outsider thing going on to it, especially with like a lot of the social scene and bar scene that goes on around here. It basically just takes Chapel Hill and slows it down and makes it a little bit smaller. I guess that's the biggest difference I can think of. It's a little bit more relaxed. So you work in Carborough, correct? Where do you work? I work at Cat's Cradle. And how long have you worked there? I started there when I was a senior in high school and I started working there maybe three years ago. And do you think the Cat's Cradle is kind of a good example of what you're talking about and the differences between the two places? In a sense, I do. They get a lot of big independent music acts and so in a sense it does, like it sort of plays on the, the indie rock aspect of Chapel Hill, but in another sense it is, it is a lot more like actual Chapel Hill proper and that, you know, they do have bigger shows and it's like a 620-person capacity venue. And so in that sense, I think it's sort of the bridging of the gap. Thanks for listening to this week's VIP segment. I'm Allison Harmon. Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle. Your local arts news. I'm Mike Alston reporting for Eye on the Triangle and Community Canvas. We're very fortunate tonight to have a live interview. Uh, we, we talked to the Burning Coal Theater from downtown Raleigh, that is Polk, Polk Street specifically, last semester. But we have a completely new cast of characters tonight. I have David Dossie in with me, Peter Haig, Randy Rand, and Jerry Davis. And they are in the Seafarer, which opened last week, and it will be running through February 21st. How's it going tonight, gentlemen? Oh, it's going terrific. Great. Excellent. So I want to talk first a little bit about the uh, the Burning Coal Theater and what your interpretation uh, of its mission is. The mission is something that I think was probably pretty well planned out. The, it uses very specific words uh, such as visceral and affecting theater and that they strive for their plays to be experienced rather than simply seen. So as an actor and as part of the Burning Coal uh, membership, what exactly does that mean to you and how do you bring that into the plays that you're in? Mm. Well, I, I tell you that the uh, first play I ever did with Burning Coal was Rat in the Skull, and Jerry uh, freaked me out by putting audience seats on the stage. Uh -huh. And I thought, what are these seats up here for? And he said, well, that's for the audience. And I said, 
really? <laughs> and so once the play started, one night we actually had people sit up there, but in this play I was, like, going after this guy's throat, just doing all this stuff. And after the intermission, they were sitting in the audience. So they did experience it, and they just got away from it as quickly as possible. <laughs> right. I think it's, uh, it's you know, we... I guess the reason why people keep coming to theater after after 4,000 years is because it allows a, a group of people to, to sit in a room together and think about great ideas or big ideas. And I think the best way to get those big ideas across is is with energy and with passion and kind of, you know, I guess you'd say in your face, uh, you know, uh, methods. And, and that's what we want to do. We want people to walk out of the building different than they walked in and if they if they do that, then then it makes sense to come. If not, then you may as well stay at home and watch TV. Rather than just being passive audience members and having this sort of purely right. one way mm-hmm. interaction, yeah. I remember mm-hmm. I remember reading that with that setup, there's been sort of a proliferation of people getting distracted, people texting, all this other stuff that happens now. So I guess you guys are able to avoid that to a large extent. Yeah, because we'll come off the stage and into the audience and sit next to you if you're texting. <laughs> we will, we will That's confiscate great, yes. your yes. iPod. Or <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've Good. actually been in the – being uh, uh, one of my last uh, jobs was at Actors Theater of Louisville, one of the largest, uh, most prestigious regional theaters in the country, and, and uh, certainly – and. Uh, Playing Dracula. Playing Dracula and uh, watching, uh, uh, remember, watching somebody in the house texting. And, of course, you know, their face lights up completely yeah, in, in yeah. a sea of darkness. So it's something you can see completely. And um, and um, somebody did go up and tell her to stop. You, you <laughs> yeah. should have swooped down on her. And, uh. In this show, though, there's, there's such an interaction uh, with the audience. And they're, they're so much a part of it. And that's part of the joy for all of us, I think, to mm-hmm. feel the audience responding. Uh, so you're pretty sure they're not out there texting. Right. And toward the end of the play, there's there's a, a real moment where uh, the audience is all with us and uh, and, and uh, what, what a certain turn of the plot, yeah, which we yeah, won't yeah, reveal. Yeah. Yeah, we know that they're much. with us and that they're having a satisfying experience. You can hear them. The you can gasps, hear the response. Yeah. rest okay. of the time, it's a lot of laughter, but... Uh, Sometimes yeah. there's silence for for some very uh, potent messages that the play has. Right. Usually my parts, there's a lot of silence. Yeah. <laughs> and Peter, when you say... And, and yeah, Peter, he doesn't give him any laughs, this guy. And Peter, when you say this play, you're referring, of course, to the seafarer. Oh, yeah. I'll do my part to introduce the play. Oh. On Christmas Eve, the boys have gathered at Sharky's Place for their weekly poker game, but one of them has brought a stranger into their midst, and there will be hell to pay. What can we add to that to that explanation without spoiling anything? Oh, my, 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 my. <laughs> uh, Christmas. Uh, it's, it takes place on Christmas Eve. Uh-huh. Yes. It takes, uh, without revealing too much, uh, you'd have to come see it to find out why there's hell to pay on Christmas Eve. Right. There's a certain tie-in, not to get academic about it, but there's a certain tie-in with medieval and Renaissance morality plays where good and evil are uh, are dueling for the possession of the simple man, you know. And mm-hmm. we see that played out in, in just a, a very entertaining way. It's you're not a, at all aware that, uh, that of connection. this parallel that yeah. it's. Uh, but but uh, oh, I'm through. So okay. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we, we thought he was perhaps you were yourself into a corner. Yeah, he he was uh, reminiscing about Ruth Gordon over there. <laughs> <laughs> now now Jerry, this play is by Connor McPherson, but you're directing it. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you guys chose this play? How the burning coal came to to put this on. Well, I I, I uh, I'm the artistic director of the theater, and I, and I um, I people ask me often how how do you pick your seasons, and the answer is um, without exception, I have to fall in love with it uh, first. And if I if I'm in love with the play, then I think there's a chance the audience might feel the same way about it. Uh, so I, I'm not all that interested in you know what will sell or what's marketable or what somebody else has done or what they made a film version of I'm, right. I, what i'm interested in is what moves me and i believe that uh, that if i if i put that on stage to the point where it where it moves me on a nightly basis as this st- show does um then like uh, Ruth Gordon at her best, uh, I, I think that the audience will be moved as well. Right. That seems like a pretty good criterion, and you've been doing it for a while, and it's, it's worked out well so far. So far, uh, so good. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now, do you guys get to play poker in the film, do you want, or in or, the film, in the play? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I would, go, go ahead, Randy. Uh, well, I should probably let you Oh. speak of this but we we uh, uh yeah we do play poker several times we play several hands yeah we have poker, uh, so. three 
three three separate games. And, and, and I'm telling you right now, it disproves the myth of multitasking because it's hard to act and say the lines and play the game at the same time. And, mm-hmm. and drink copious amounts of drink drink copious amounts, amounts of, of alcohol. <laughs> if we were, and I'll tell you this much: there's a lot of alcohol in the play consumed, and by the end of the intermission, there's a fight to see who gets to the bathroom first. But, but I mean, we do. We, we, of course, everybody out there wanted to know that. Right. But no, so, we're, so the alcohol doesn't make it easier? No, just no. we're not using real alcohol. No, but no. it's like, you know, it's like whenever they... Then we wouldn't care. And yeah, I was like, don't tell them that. I want them to believe. The yeah, so well, but, it, but it's like, you know, when you're playing the game, it's like he says to me at one point, are you in? And I'm like, what did I just do? Did mm-hmm. I just bet? Did I draw cards? Whatever. And so we've did really... I see? Did I see? Did I raise? Did I hold? Fold. Fold, whatever. So you've got mm-hmm. to pay attention to that. I, I, I always tell this. There's a play called Bleacher Bums in which you have to keep track of a nine-inning baseball game. And mm-hmm. you're up there doing your lines. All of a sudden, there's a crack of the bat. You've got to know who hit the ball, where they went, how it turned out. Did they, you know, whatever. So it's along those same lines. You, it's keeping track of that game if we did that we wouldn't be in the play so we're in the play right. and on top of that uh, peter's character is blind uh, so he's uh, participating in this process without the without the uh, uh, ability oh, wow. to see actually right. see what's in front of him but of course he can see so he has to act as if he can't see so mm. so you're, you're coming as close to multitasking as is possible i suppose peter Yes, it's enough to confuse me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I want to talk. I'm an older a, type of person. It's not that hard. Right. I want to talk a little bit about um, the level of difficulty. Now, the Burning Coal. Several of the members are. It's it's a nighttime gig, and they they work during the day. Mm-hmm. So, if you guys will take a second to talk a little bit about, uh, I'm not sure what that's like to have these two different uh, roles that you play, and to be able to get off work. And still put your well, all into, into performing. Unfortunately, you've got the three people that are not in that position. Ah, okay. Yeah. But you the have. guys that are, uh, one of Stephen LeTrent holds down a full-time job with a company out in RTP somewhere. And he works all day. And then he drives straight to the theater. And and the other one, Holden Hansen, uh, teaches two hours from here. He teaches at UNC Pembroke. So he has a two-hour drive each direction each night to get wow. to the theater. Yeah, and they, they show up, they take a breath, and then they're ready to work. And mm-hmm. their commitment mm-hmm. to this work is substantial. I mean, it's, the, the, yeah, it's yeah. full-blown. They, they kick one of those eight words that you've got written on that piece of paper that <laughs> right. I can't say. I mean. right. <laughs> yeah, they kick Heine. Right. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So what else do you guys have going on right now? I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the well, there, there are a couple of exciting things. Uh, um, first of all, we're, we have a, uh, an event at, on Valentine's Day. We're going to uh, auction off a trip to London with us at the end of March, um, and that's going to take place at the end of a big Valentine's Day party that we're uh, having immediately following the performance. So uh-huh. you can get the performance, you can get the big party with live music and dance, and then you can get the entrance into the raffle for the London ticket, which is a $2,500 value for yeah. 100 bucks. Uh, and we're also, then the following week on the 20th, we're going to have two poker experts, uh, published authors, one from Los Angeles, one who's in state here, who are going to be doing a hands-on demonstration prior to the performance. It oh, starts at cool. 545 and at 730 the, the performance begins. So come out on the 20th and your ticket will get you in free to see the the, po- the two poker kings, I'm calling them, who, uh-huh. who are going to give a little demonstration on how it's uh, how it's really done. <laughs> yeah. Boys. Well, Cool. Yeah. So, so from one nonprofit to another, you guys are doing very, very creative things, very different ways to get people into mm-hmm. the theater. And I think it's very good stuff that you're doing. So let's say one more time, the Seafarer, it's currently happening. Let's see, the next performance is February 11th. Thursday night, right. Thursday night, February 11th through February 21st. And to purchase tickets, people should go to the website? Burningcoal.org or uh, 834-4001. You've said that number many times before, haven't Indeed. you? And so very, David Dossie, Peter Haig. Randy Rand, Jerry Davis, thank you guys so much for coming in. Thank you for having thank us. You. Thank yes, you very much. and I look forward to getting out there and, and seeing see you guys the show. play some poker. Yeah, yeah come, come see it. it. Yeah, play with us. <laughs> so for more information, burningcoal.org, and it will also be on the blog, wknc.org slash blog. Once again, this is Mike Alston. You're listening to Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle.
Eye on the Triangle. Your local music news. Now that the dust has settled on the double barrel benefit number seven, it's time to look ahead at the next big landmark event in the triangle music scene, the Grade Eight. The Grade Eight is a showcase of hardworking triangle bands compiled by David Manconi, the music critic for the News and Observer. He's once again shining his spotlight on bands and musicians that have been working hard and have become buzzworthy over the past year. They won't be unveiling the lineup until the day of the show, February 25th, which takes place at the local 506. But we at the station have been having fun speculating on who we would put on this list. I'm going to cheat and make my selections for two bands that I would like to see make the list by going first while the field is still wide open. For the record, my name is Jacob, and anyone who knows me won't be surprised to hear that the first band that I would like to see make the list is Free Electric State. Not only is the Durham Quartet who does a dynamite job of blending loud rock and shoegaze, been playing out every chance they get, but ever since they signed on with Church Street Records, there's been a lot of buzz about their first full-length album coming out later on in the year. Here's Free Electric State with the song Pops. pick if it was limited to just one would have to be schooner also due for a big year but tomorrow february 9th they drop their Cytoons exclusive ep the duck knee sessions but the pop posse known for their harmony also has a major new lp due out later on this year submitted for your approval here's a little bit of the duck knee sessions this is the track maybe we lose Schooner, Maybe We Lose, off of the Duck Knee Sessions. Those are my two picks, but the fun of speculating about events like the Great Eight is seeing who other people would pick. And to that end, uh, we'll start off with KNC superstar Rachel, who you may know from grabbing the first local lunch of each and every working week. Hi. <laughs> Narrowing it down to two bands is kind of tough, huh? Yeah, that's a really, really tough choices to make. This year, I fell in love with a lot of local albums. Um... But based on some of the live performances that I got to see and the new albums that came out, I feel that Midtown Dickens should absolutely be on there. They've been in the scene for a while, and watching them perform makes me want to be a better person and live a better life. And after uh, this past week's Double Barrel Benefit, um, seeing Spiderbacks perform really made me a true diehard fan of Spiderbacks. So I those are my two picks, but... It was a really tough choice out of all the things that came out this year. Midtown Dickens has recently grown from a duo to a quintet, but it's still not enough for them to just allow their voices to sing in harmony. No, they still need to make music with whatever they can get their hands on, from musical saws to the banjo to the trombone. And for that, we thank them. This is off their album Lanterns. It's called Balloons. Oh, I like this a lot Cause there's more to life than saying There's more to life than being once more, this Midtown Dickens with balloons. There's no fair way to describe the Chapel Hill-based psychedelic southern rock band Spiderbags, so you're going to just have to give them a listen yourself. Uh, here's a clip off of Nowhere, Nobody, Nothing, off of uh, the album Goodbye, Cruel World, Hello, Crueler World. You're listening to Nowhere, Nobody, Nothing by the Spider-Bags. And once more, here this is running speculations on the News and Observer's annual Great 8 Spotlight. And we're taking prospects from various KNC 88.1 staff members. Next up, we've got DJ Stovall. Thanks for being with us. Yes, thank you very much. Um, the, the two bands that I've picked for the Great 8 are, are two bands that I think share the same uh, characteristics of of stage presence, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, they both really bring to the shows exactly what you want to see when you go to a show, and that is stage presence. Um, it's something that I think, you know, if, if I was listening to a band and, uh, you know, I loved their CD and thought it was great and I came out to the show, I would hope that when I listen to them on the CD and I see them at the show that there is something completely different, and I really can't stress the importance of that, and I see it um, in both these two bands uh, being Bright Young Things and Gray Young. Now, with uh, Bright Young Things, they're uh, Scott Andrews, Mark Connor, Matt Demron, Will Goodyear, and Cameron Lee. So it's a five-piece, I guess. The merits of Bright Young Things can be tested on Thursday night at Tierno for WKNC's weekly local beer, local band series. Here they are with She Left You Dreaming. And now you know the answer. 
bright young things, she left you dreaming. The other band being Gray Young is a band that I see everywhere. I really do. They're, they're, they're doing shows at Poor House, at Tiernanog, local beer, local band night. They're doing a lot of these events where, you know, people can come out and see them and they have that stage presence that I was talking about. Uh, but they're definitely a, mo- a mostly, well, not mostly instrumental, but a lot of their songs are uh, instrumental bass, lots of buildups. And uh, they just released their uh, self-released album, Firmament, uh, which, is, which is great. Well, off of Firmament, here is Gray Young with Tilling the Wind. What's more, Gray Young, Tilling the Wind. Uh, joining me now to uh, lay some Vegas odds on who should be on the Great Eight um, is DJ Mick. Thanks, Jacob. For my money, I think uh, Vili and Luego have tremendous upside. Vili, of course, has pretty much caught everyone's ear uh, in, a ma- in a matter of about six months to a year with just three songs and a couple live performances. And then Luego, of course... Just gets better every time I see them. They have the legendary Peter Holsapp on the band. And they have just about all those drug horse people playing on the new album, which I've heard is mostly recorded, being produced, and absolutely amazing. So I think Patrick Phelan is a persistent guy in Luego. Will be really successful in the year to come. Here's a track off Feely's offering three sides. It's called Not Getting Nowhere. That once more is one of DJ Mix's picks for who he hopes to see make the great eight. The news and observer makes the announcement on February 25th, not getting nowhere. His other hope for the great eight is Luego. Here they are with Attaboy off of the album Tape Together Stories. Our hopes for the great eight on the news and observer unveils those on the 25th of February. And uh, looking forward to seeing some of those bands playing the showcase at the local 506 that evening. We'd love to hear from you, uh, the listeners of Hear This on Eye on the Triangle, on what bands you think are local and worth keeping both ears open for in the 2010 year. You can reach us online with your predictions at www.wknc.org slash EOT. Sound Bites on Eye on the Triangle. Opinions from around the NC State campus. This is Chris Chaffee for Eye on the Triangle. This week on Sound Bites, we went out and asked people whether they liked Glenwood South or Downtown Raleigh better, and if they felt there was a rivalry between the two places. My name's Brittany, and I'm in chemical engineering. Do you frequent either the downtown or the Glenwood South area? Maybe like once every two weeks. And which do you prefer? Downtown, because I go to the clubs down there. My name is Gary Warren. Uh, my major is biochemistry. Well, I think that there's a lot more eating, uh, you know, facilities on Glenwood South. And uh, downtown area, it definitely has some great shops, but they're not exactly the best restaurants. I like downtown. I really like the, uh, uh, let's see, I like the Times. Kelly Wiley, my major is international politics and French. I go to downtown Raleigh. Um, I like to go to Raleigh Times and Morning Times, and I like to walk around Fayetteville Street. Sometimes I go to First Fridays. Do you feel like there's a rivalry between Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh? I guess maybe I've heard people talk about it. I always just go to downtown. I'm more familiar with it. My name's Stuart Blessing, and I'm an LTN major. Uh, Glenwood South. I mainly, I like the the Helios Coffee Bar right there, and uh, there's that little burger joint down there, uh, Mojo's. I like those places. Especially with all the construction right now, um, Hillsborough's kind of, I just don't like it that much. Not that I know of. Um, I mean, I have friends and stuff, and it's it's pretty much just like, well, where do you want to go kind of thing? Where do you want to hang out? But I wouldn't say there's a rivalry there. Uh, Russell Gentry, my major is history. Do you occasionally go downtown or to Glenwood South? Yes, uh, because I like Mellow Mushroom and also Tiernanog. You know, Tiernanog is downtown. Yeah. Okay. So if you were to choose one or the other, which one would you prefer? Glenwood South. Why is that? Because I go to Mellow Mushroom more often, and it's closer. Do you believe that there's a rivalry between the two? Uh, no, because, um, I don't know, I just go to whichever one's closer. Krista Hardway, Parks, Recreation, Commercial Tourism, Program Management. Do you frequent Glenwood South or the downtown Raleigh area? Maybe about once a week. I'll go to Sushi Blues here and there. But you mostly stay downtown? I guess, for the most part, yeah. Uh, do you feel like there's, like, a rivalry between the two areas? 
If there is, I'm oblivious to it. This has been Chris Chaffee for Soundbites. And that wraps up another episode of Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Make sure to keep checking back at wknc.org slash EOT and the blog at wknc.org slash blog. Thanks.